Good morning. We are glad that you are here this morning, and I just say that it's been nice to see the sun coming through those windows over there as it has raised and has raised our hopes a little bit too. That uh, there's always a, a, a sun to shine after the rain has come, and so. Hope you've been as encouraged by that this morning as I have. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I hope that you have, please take them out and turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 29. Genesis 29. We will continue our study through Genesis this morning and through our series, The Story That Explains Our Stories. Last week, if you were with us, you'll know that I began by asking you a riddle, and I thought I would ask you another one today. Uh, We'll see if you do better than the first service did in being able to come up with the answer. Uh, How do you describe the relationship that exists between an orange and a tangerine? Or between a cupcake and a muffin? Or between a crocodile and an alligator? Or between a turtle and a tortoise? How would you describe that relationship? All right, I'm going to give you the answer. You're not going to like it, but they're similar, but they're different. That's how you describe the relationship. They're similar, but they're different. They're not the same thing, but they are very similar. The reason why I ask you that question this morning is because the relationship that exists between the passage that we are going to read today and previous passages that we've already studied is kind of like that. The passage we're going to read today is similar to some of those passages, but it's also different. In fact, there are some very common elements and some themes that recur in our study this morning that we've already studied previously in Genesis, and yet there are significant differences between what we're going to read today and what we've already studied in the past as well. And what I think we will find is that in those similarities, but also recognizing those differences is exactly where we find the unique application of this text. And so just to sort of throw that out there to let you be thinking about that, let's begin reading our text this morning. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 1, we hear the word of God as it tells us, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in a field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now, all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so he said, Well, is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, lifted up his voice and wept. 
And Jacob told Rachel that he was her, rel- her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in to her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And now it came to pass in the evening that He took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. and So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. And Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to read it aloud, to be able to hear it, to be able to focus our attention on it. Now I pray that the truth of your word will be applied to our hearts and to our lives. Help us to learn more about you, your character, more about ourselves and the circumstances we face. 
And then, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to leave this place, Father, more inclined to understand exactly who you are and who we are and how that affects our daily living. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, this is a rather long narrative, as you no doubt are aware, but I think we can divide it up into some parts that will help us be able to understand what the narrator, who I believe is Moses, is trying to tell us in these passages. And, and, and I've done so in such a way to try to uh, formulate some, some familiar characteristics that will help connect these passages with previous ones that we've studied. And so note the very first point on your outline uh, this morning. The first point simply is this. A wife is found at a well. A wife is found at a well. Verse 1 begins, begins by telling us, so Jacob went on his journey. Literally, the Hebrew says this. It says Jacob lifted up his feet. That is a, a Hebrew way, a figure of speech of indicating that, that Jacob had some pep in his step. He, he had some excitement in his, in his bones, invigorated by everything that had just happened in the previous chapter. You'll, you'll remember that Jacob had encountered the Lord there at Bethel. He had, he had seen this ladder that had come down from, from heaven and, and he had seen the angels ascending and descending on it. And, and there he had encountered God Almighty. And at that same encounter, God had reiterated the promises that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and now to him, telling him that, that he would be blessed with a land and with a people and with descendants that would outnumber the, the sands on the seashore. But God had also reiterated his promise that he had said, I will be with you wherever you go and I will bring you back here. And all of those promises and encountering God and the fate that had resulted from that really caused Jacob to, to get some bounce to him. And he bounced up and he went forward into the land of his mother's people, to the land of Padan Aram. And there he went to find the wife that God had prepared for him. And exactly what happened on the rest of the trip, we don't know because evidently it was uneventful because the next 400 miles of that trip just are blanked out because Moses gets us to what he finds. The next thing we know is that Jacob is in the land where he, where he was supposed to go to and he's there at a well and he finds something interesting when he gets to the well. There, there's three flocks of sheep and, 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 and with these three flocks of sheep, they're just all laying down and, and evidently the, the shepherds of those sheep were lying down with them, just lazily taking in the whole day and and this is probably an odd thing for for to see it in during the middle of the day but Jacob decides to ask if they know happen to know where they're from where are you guys from and do you happen to know Laban the son of Nahor and is he doing okay and those are three important questions because he wanted to find out where he was actually at and they find out that he's from Haran and he knows okay good I'm in the right spot well do you happen to know Laban yeah we know Laban well, is he doing okay? Sure, he's really doing well. As a matter of fact, there's his daughter, Rachel. And she's bringing sheep over to the same well to water the well. Now, you got to use a little holy imagination here. But I think based upon what the rest of the text tells us, it was probably one of those moments. Some of you guys in here have had one of those moments. One of those moments where you just see the one. And, you know, the, the, the sun, just the beam of light, just shaft just shines right on her. And the, the angels start singing in the background and, and everything, the time just sort of stands still. I can kind of imagine that that might have been the moment because later what you read in this text is, is that Jacob was really smitten by 
Rachel's looks and by her attractiveness. And he saw her as she came across. And, and I think that's what leads many scholars to note the next point. The next point is he starts looking around. He's going, man, I got all these other shepherds around here. I need to figure. He says, guys, what are y'all doing up here around the mouth of this well? Why aren't you? You need to get these sheep up, water them, get them back out there to pasture. They need to be out there eating grass, not up here laying down next to the mouth of the well. He didn't want them around when he met Rachel. But they said, we can't water our sheep because not everybody else is here yet. As a matter of fact, they say, we have to wait for everybody else to show up. Now, there's been a couple of explanations for that. Some wonder if it was not because that the owner of the well had to be there and it was his responsibility to open the mouth of the well and to push the large stone away because he was the one that owned the well. That's a possibility, but it was equally possible that the, the stone was so large that the shepherds waited until there was a large number of shepherds there for them all to go up and to push the stone away because of the size. Well, if that's the case, what we learn is, is that this, this Jacob, who had all the pep in his step in verse 1, started having all the strength in his shoulders and in his back here in verse 10 because he goes up by himself, he mans it and just pushes the stone away so that the water begins to flow. And then he says, guys, y'all can just stay laying down over there if you don't mind. Rachel, you just come right on up and get the water. That's how this story begins to happen. Then we read this. This is kind of interesting. Jacob then kisses Rachel which is admitted kind of weird because he's just met her. We shouldn't infer upon that that it was a romantic kiss. It was a, probably a kiss of, of, of one of, of just getting to know one, but he doesn't even, she doesn't know who he is. She only finds that out after he kisses her. And then the scriptures tell us he begins to weep loudly. Now, if you're Rachel at this point, you're probably going, what is wrong with this guy? It's as if all of his emotions that he's been carrying with him just erupt all at once. But then he tells her who he is and he tells her why he's there and that he is actually her relative. And so Rachel leaves and runs back and tells her father Laban who then comes out. He kisses Jacob. He welcomes him and said, come on back to the house and let's get to know one another. And that's that's how this section ends. And I've given this, the, the heading of this section, a wife is found at a well. And if that sounds somewhat familiar, it ought to. Because back in chapter 24, Abraham sent his most trusted servant to this same land, to this same land here in Haran, in, in Padan Aram. He sent his, his servant there to find a wife for his son, Isaac, who happened to be Jacob's father. And he sent him there, and the first thing, interestingly enough, that the servant came to was he came to a well. He came to a well, and it was there that he began to pray to God. God, would you please show me the woman that you want for the wife of my servant's son, or my, my, my master's son? Would you show her to me? And it says there that Rebecca, Jacob's mother, came to the well at the exact same time that the servant was there and she came to draw water and when she saw the servant and saw all the camels that the servant had with her, not only did she draw water for the servant, but she drew water to, to water all of the servant's camels as well. And her actions actually proved that this was the one that God had selected to be Isaac's wife. And what we see is that God's providential grace was at work leading Abraham's servant 
and Rebekah to the same well at the same time in order for the two of them to meet. Well, back here in chapter 29, God is obviously at work again. Only this time, it's not the servant, it's Jacob himself who comes to the well. And it's, interestingly, some scholars even say that this was the same well that Abraham's servant had gone to, though there's not enough convincing evidence to make us dogmatic about that. Nevertheless, there was a well, and, and Rachel showed up at the exact time that Jacob shows up. And what we see is that God's providential grace is at work. And what that reminds us is, is that God's unseen hand is always working behind the scenes of our lives. He moves in, in the day in and the day out things that many times we may not take a lot of stock in or really think much about, but God is in the process of working in our lives to bring about His plans and to fulfill His promises. And that should be an encouragement to us. Because it reminds us that our lives are not ruled by chance. They're not ruled by fate. They are ruled by God. But let me point a couple of other significant differences between those stories out to you. First, many scholars have noted that unlike Abraham's servant back in chapter 24, we don't read of Jacob ever praying to God. We don't read of Jacob ever saying, God, can you show me who the woman is that you want me to marry? No, Really what we see is that he doesn't ask for guidance and, and he doesn't wait on God to, to give him any instructions. Furthermore, while Abraham's servant did not seem to be interested in Rebekah's appearance, but more interested in the nature of her heart and, and, and the, 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 the heart of service that she had, the text here, as it continues to be revealed to us, shows us that Jacob was really concerned about the physical beauty of Rachel. We're going to keep those thoughts in the back of our mind as we continue forward. Notice the second heading that I want you to see as our text continues to unfold for us. The second heading is this. A dad is involved in a deception. A dad is involved in a deception. Verse 14 tells us that Jacob accepted Laban's offer to come back to his home and to stay there. And, and he does for about a month. And during this period of time, everybody gets acquainted with one another. And I'm sure that Laban is checking out the stories that... That, that Jacob is telling to make sure that they line up with what he remembers and they're getting to know one another and figuring out everything that's going on and, and who uh, is who. And, and notice what's interesting there at the end, you, you see Laban tell Jacob, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Now that's an interesting, it's an interesting phrase. In the context, certainly what it meant was is that Laban is convinced that Jacob is his nephew. Laban is convinced that he is, they are related as, as Jacob had declared. But there's an even further ironic twist to that phrase because we know that Laban's not necessarily on the up and up. As a matter of fact, one author puts it this way, these two were sprung from the same mold. And Laban and Jacob proved to be much more alike than they are different. It was during this get-to-know-one-another phase that, that Laban, though, obviously recognized that while his sister Rebecca, if you recall, when Abraham's servant had come, he paid handsomely for Rebecca. He gave camels and, and, and clothing and gold and silver, and that was the price that Abraham's servant paid in order for Rebecca to go back and marry Isaac. But undoubtedly, by this point, Laban has realized, well, Jacob has come here to marry, marry my daughter and he doesn't have anything to offer me. 
He's got nothing. I see no camels, no gold, no silver. What am I going to get paid for the hand of my daughter? And so obviously after this first month, Laban is setting the trap. So in verse 15, he says, listen, because you are my relative, Jacob, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, we expect immediate answer, but notice what Moses does. Moses, the author, the author here and the narrator of the story, raises the suspense level in the story by stopping it. Doesn't tell us what Jacob says yet and says, oh, by the way, Laban doesn't just have one daughter. He's got two. In fact, Rachel's the younger of the two. He's got an older daughter named Leah, and Leah has delicate eyes or soft eyes, weak eyes, depending on which version you're reading this morning. No one really knows what that means. Everybody guesses at it. Nobody really knows for sure what it means to have those eyes. Perhaps it's just simply this. Maybe she just didn't have a spark in her eye. Because she had always lived in the shadow of her younger, more beautiful, exquisite sister named Rachel. What's obvious is that Rachel is described as being beautiful of form and appearance. And what is also obvious is that at least to Jacob and most likely to everyone else, Leah was not as physically attractive as Rachel. We are told explicitly that Jacob loved Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel. I want to point out again that Jacob doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God which of those daughters should be the one that he should marry. Rather, he goes with what he sees. And what he sees, well, the beauty of Rachel seals the deal for him. The choice is easy. So Jacob replies to Laban, listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Don't move past that too quickly because there's a little bit of art of negotiation going on right here. Laban is obviously setting the trap, but Jacob wants to make sure that he gets him in on what he wants to see done as well. According to later writings in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 29, the price that was set that a husband needed to pay a father for the hand of the daughter was at a minimum of 50 shekels of silver. It's estimated that shepherds would make about 10 shekels a year. That would be five years worth of labor. So when Jacob says, I will serve you for the hand of your daughter, he's going over and above what was the going rate to have to pay. He was making sure that Laban didn't turn down his offer. And Laban didn't. Now you notice what Laban does. He says, well, okay. I suppose I'll take it. I don't want her to go to somebody else. I guess I'll, I'll take your price. And that meekness, that mock meekness is there because Laban is setting the trap. Now, verse 20. We don't know anything about those seven years of service. Nothing is told. Fast forward, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. And everybody in the room just goes, aw, that is so sweet. Verse 20 actually, though, gives us a peek into the extent of the passion and the affection and the zeal and the love that Jacob had for Rachel. He was madly in love with her, which makes the deception that her dad pulled on him even that much more devastating. 
Laban had not been keeping up with the years, but Jacob sure had. Verse 21, he says, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Evidently, Laban had been holding out. He'd been kind of delaying the whole process as long as he could. Verse 21 also indicates the strong desire that Jacob had for Rachel. His bluntly worded demand indicates that he was ready for the wedding. We'll leave it at that. So Laban prepares for the wedding. He prepares for the wedding of his daughter. And he invites all the people of the town to the celebration. And he prepares this big feast. And I imagine it was much food. And I imagine it was much wine and much celebration. And at the end of the evening, Laban presents Jacob with his daughter. She's still veiled, as was the custom of the people. Jacob takes her into his tent. And they consummate their wedding. It was dark. Remember, there's no electricity. There's no lights. Jacob's giddy. Some even suggest that he's perhaps even maybe even a little inebriated from the wine. Whatever the case, he did not realize what had happened. And then verse 25 tells us that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob has been deceived. The sister that he had touched, the sister that he had kissed, the sister that he had caressed the night before, the sister that he thought was Rachel is in fact Leah. Jacob had been careful specifying that it was the hand of Rachel that he wanted to marry. It was was for her that he had served those seven years. But then Laban in cooperation, don't miss that, with his daughter Leah, deceived Jacob. Jacob had been given the wrong sister. Shocked and dumbfounded, angered, he immediately approaches Laban. He says, what is this you've done to me? Was it not Rachel that I agreed to serve you all those years? Why have you deceived me? And we wonder as those words rolled off his lips, was he cognizant of the fact that just seven years before, it had been him who had taken the skin of a goat and put it on the back of his hands and the skin of a goat on the back of his neck so that when his father caressed and hugged him and touched him and kissed him and smelled him, he thought it was his brother Esau, but in fact it was Jacob. And the very blessing that his father intended to give to his brother Esau, he was deceived into giving it to his brother Jacob instead. What we come to realize is that now, as one has said, the chickens have come home to roost. Jacob is reaping what he has sown. As one writer put it, Jacob has now been treated as he had treated his father and his brother. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, at last Jacob knew what it was to be like one on the receiving end. What are we to make of this? What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about how God deals with us? Alan Ross notes that God's people often find their sin coming back on them to discipline them. Specifically, Ross points out that Jacob's painful experience was God's rebuke of him for deceiving his father to obtain the blessing. Brothers and sisters, what we come here to, what we come face to face with here is the consequences of sin. 
Remember that God has made great and glorious promises to Jacob. Promises that are not in doubt. He has promised him that he's going to bless him and that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He's promised to bring him back into the land of Canaan. All of these things were going to happen. In the process, Jacob has been shown grace. He has been shown mercy. But God also makes it clear right here that in his love for Jacob, that does not mean that he will not face the consequences of his sin. And those consequences are not there to punish him. They are there to discipline him. They are there to correct him. And the same is true for us. In the scriptures, they teach us this. In Job chapter 5, verse 17, we read this. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. In the book of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, we read this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. You see, what had just happened to Jacob was painful. It was sad. Yet God allowed Laban's cruel and heartless deception to occur in order to, to give Jacob a visual picture of himself prior to his spiritual experience at Bethel. This is what we refer to as sanctifying discipline. It's discipline that's, decide, that's designed to mature us. It's designed to transform us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. He, says, he, he states the obvious. He says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. All of us can say absolutely true. No one enjoys the chastening hand of the Lord in the present. But then he says this, nevertheless, after it, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, the sanctifying discipline of God is not easy. It hurts. It is painful. We recoil from it. We groan under its discomfort. We complain about it. Our sin nature rises up within us to defend ourselves, to rebel against what we experience and to justify our response to it. But what we must understand is that our, we must see things from God's perspective. Just as the writer of Hebrews tells us, God's promises, he, he tells us that after the pain and after the discipline subsides, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. In other words, God promises to bring forth fruit from our discipline. And this fruit is the, the outward effect of his divine discipline in our lives. Each time God disciplines us, he moves us closer and closer to holiness. And that is exactly what God uses this event in Jacob's life to do for him. God was going to use this pain and to produce, in order to produce maturity in Jacob and to grow him into the man that he was forming him to be. Now, what I want you to notice is what happens next. Jacob complains to Laban. He says, look, you've deceived me. But then Laban says, look, in our country, the younger, it's not our custom to marry the younger before we marry the older off. And so that I find to be ironic because in this particular culture, there were certain rights and privileges that were afforded to the oldest, to the firstborn in the family. And it was those same rights and privileges, you'll recall, that Jacob had disregarded with regard to his older brother Esau. 
And then Laban says, look, I'll give you Rachel's hand in marriage, but you've got to fulfill your week's responsibility to Leah first. In other words, you go through the celebration of the marriage, and then after that celebration is over with, I'll give you the hand of Rachel. And then with that, though, you will also have to pay me the same price. You will have to serve seven more years. What was Jacob to do? He loved Rachel. He wanted her for his wife. So he fulfilled his responsibility to Leah, as the scriptures say, and then after that week was up, he married Rachel and began serving Laban for another seven years. And I also find it ironic that it had been said of Jacob and Esau that Esau would serve Jacob, that the older would serve the younger. But before that would come to pass, Jacob would serve Laban in the land outside of Canaan. So I've described the first section as a wife is found at a well. The second section is a dad is involved in a deception. And then notice finally with me, as we'll run through it quickly, a sibling is selected by God. A sibling is selected by God. As much as verse 20 might make us go awe when we say that he served Laban seven years and it seemed as only a few days, we probably have a different feeling when we get to verses 30 and 31 because we read there that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and then we read that the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and now our hearts are crying out poor Leah in fact Tim Keller refers to her as the girl that nobody wanted her dad didn't want her her dad deceived another man in order to get her out from underneath his authority and to give her to him. He didn't want Leah. And then the man to whom he married, or to whom she married, didn't want her either. He wanted her sister instead. Leah was the girl that nobody wanted. But our God, seeing and hearing all of this, was filled with compassion for Leah. Now, while it could certainly be said that she helped create her scenario, because after all, it is true, she could have removed the veil and said to Jacob on their way to the wedding bed to say, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not my sister Rachel. I'm Leah. She could have done that, and she did not. While even so, understand that God was nevertheless moved by Rachel's plight, or excuse me, by Leah's plight. He saw the misery of a woman who was now locked into a loveless relationship for life and he showed compassion to her. And notice what the Lord does. According to verse 31, he opened Leah's womb. But Rachel was barren. Though Rachel was the beloved wife of Jacob, God chose to open Leah's womb. And as we go on to read, she had four sons in successive order. Very rapidly, notice the first son was named Reuben, which his name literally means look, a son. And she says, the Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. And she named her son Reuben because she was hoping that Jacob would look upon her with love and with affection. But alas, Jacob still had his heart trained right on Rachel. So then she has a second son and she names him Simeon, which means the Lord has heard. And she says that she hopes that the Lord, she knows that the Lord has heard her cry and because she has unloved. And she's also hoping that that the cry of this young boy will melt the heart of his father and that he will have, instead of hatred for her, will have love for her. But yet again, Jacob's heart was set upon Rachel. Then a third son comes along. This time Leah names the son Levi, which literally means attachment. Notice that is absent from this. She's no longer asking for love. She just wants 
to feel connected to him. She wants to somehow feel connected to her husband, to just feel attached, but yet still Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Then finally Leah became pregnant a fourth time, bore a fourth son. This time she said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Notice that with, with this final son that the Lord closes Leah's womb. But further notice that with this birth, there's no plea for love or, or even improved relationship with Jacob. Leah has given up. She was thankful to God for blessing her with her four sons. And she declared her praise of God, which is what the name Judah means. Now, here's the part that I just couldn't get over when I was studying this passage. Jacob, as we know was the son that his father rejected in favor of Esau. Yet Jacob was the one chosen by God to be the son of the promise. He was the one that God had said and declared back in chapter 28, verse 14, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, here we see that Leah was the wife that went unloved by Jacob in favor of the much-loved Rachel, yet God chose to bless Leah. You see, though she was rejected by Jacob, she was selected by God. And it would be through her womb that God would fulfill his promise, not only to Jacob, but to Isaac and to Abraham. You see, it was through Leah, through her fourth-born son Judah, that the, the same one from whom would come the line of David and ultimately would be born the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who would ultimately be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It would be through Leah that Jesus the Messiah would be born. And to quote Tim Keller once more, he says, God came to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, and made her the mother of Jesus. Not beautiful Rachel, but the homely one, the unwanted one, the unloved one. And we might cry out, well, why does God do that? Why does God work in that way? Is it just because he's always pulling for the underdog? Is that just why this is happening? I don't think so. I think rather what we see in this is something of the nature of God. You see, when the Lord looked at Leah, he saw that she was unloved and he said, I will love you. When he looked at Leah, he saw someone who was rejected and he says, I will take you in. He says, I will be the husband to the husbandless. I will be the father to the fatherless. I am the real and true bridegroom. And I want you to know, God still reaches out to the unwanted. He still reaches out to the unattractive. He still reaches out to the weak and to the shunned and to the shamed of this world. And that is good news for folks like you and like me and for every person who has ever felt unloved and unwanted and rejected. In his love, God reaches out to folks just like Leah and just like you and just like me and he reaches out to them with the gospel. But that's not all. I believe God also selects Leah to be the mother of the Lord Jesus in order to show us the way of the gospel. 
Consider this, when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he became a man that nobody wanted. The Bible tells us that he was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. John tells us that he came into his own and his own received him not. The scripture says that there was no beauty in him that would naturally attract us to him. The New Testament reveals that he was the stone that the builders rejected. And in the end, when he was stretched out on a Roman cross, nobody wanted Jesus. In fact, everybody deserted him. And God himself, his own father, turned his face away from him. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God. God, why have you forsaken me? But it was through his rejection. It was through his death and his resurrection and his rejection by men that Jesus became the chief cornerstone. And the scriptures teach us that all peoples everywhere who will humble themselves before the Lord Jesus and admit their sinfulness and the fact that they are absolutely lost apart from him, that the grace and the mercy of God will flow into their lives regardless of who else has loved them, regardless of who else has pushed them away. Jesus Christ has come to save the lost and the unwanted and the unloved. And in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, God selected Leah, the wife that Jacob rejected, to be the one through whom the Savior of the world would be born. Brothers and sisters, if that does not give you hope that God has demonstrated his own love toward you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. It is the gospel that rises from the pages of scripture and proclaims to us there is one way and one way only. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he has come from a way that none of us would have ever chosen. None of us would have ever, the people of Israel would have never promoted the fact that it came from Leah. No, they promoted as true because that's the way God loves. And so that brings me to my sermon in a sense this morning. You see, all of these elements and these themes of this text, they're familiar, but they're different. And in their familiarity and their difference, they bring out what really is important. And it's this, God fulfills his promises through providential grace through his sanctifying discipline, and through his sovereign selection of the rejected. Some of you need to be reminded of that today because where you are in your life right now, you are probably trying to figure out how in the world did I get here? And what is God doing in the scenario that I find myself in? Brothers and sisters, you have not been abandoned. God who created all things is still on his throne and his providential grace is still working. His unseen hand is still at work behind the scenes. Some of you may also be going through some difficulties that quite frankly you may have brought on yourself through sin. Through some of your sin, God may right now be disciplining some of you in this room. But instead of pushing away from that discipline, instead of becoming angry at God, understand that the Lord corrects those who are His own. And He does it with the goal in mind of bringing forth the fruit of sanctification and holiness. He uses His holy sandpaper in our lives, which does not feel good, in order to smooth us out and to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus. And then there's probably some of you in this room who are still struggling with whether or not any of this stuff is true. And if that's you, I really want you to zero in with me for just a second. And understand this. God, in his great love for you, has shown you grace and mercy and love 
over and over and over and over again to bring you to the point to where you will humble yourself before him and recognize that it does not matter what the rest of the world thinks of me. It does not matter what my own spouse thinks of me. It doesn't matter what my children think of me. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of me. And God has shown me that he loves me through his son Jesus. And if you will humble yourself before him, he will save you. That is the message of the gospel. It is the message of this text. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.